0: So, like I said, we're in Genesis chapter 2, and in Genesis chapter 2, we have a more in-depth look at how God created man and woman, we have a description of the Garden of Eden, a description of of marriage, all these events are taking place before the fall, before the entrance of sin into this world. Now, as we look at this text this morning, I want to try to impress upon you uh, the significance of this portion of scripture. The whole book of Genesis, but especially these first few chapters, are so foundational to Christian truth and doctrine, and yet they are constantly under attack in our day today. It's it's, the denial of these first few chapters of Genesis is systemic in our culture today. You think about the very first verse, in the beginning God, At No, God doesn't exist. Uh, That's not true. Uh, God created this earth in six days. No, that's not true because evolutionary theory explains the origin of all living things on this earth. So that's not true as well. We get into chapter two and he begins to talk about um, the the creation of the the Garden of Eden and how God has made man to work. And he describes here uh, a marriage union between Adam and Eve. And and when he describes the marriage union, he describes differing roles between husband and wife. And so as soon as you start talking about roles in a marriage, and again, the red flags go up in our culture. know, that's, that's immoral, that's patriarchal, that's from an age gone by to have difference of roles between a husband and wife in a marriage. So That's denied. In fact, even marriage itself is denied today. Marriage is, is seen as something that is for a f- former time. And even the idea of God creating people as male and female, again, is, is under attack in the sense that, well, male and female isn't necessarily what God has made you to be. Male and female is what you choose to be. It's a social construct, this idea of male and female. And so we see almost every single theme in these first few chapters of Genesis is is either denied, or twisted, or perverted. And what we're looking at today is the idea of work. Because in Genesis chapter 2, God makes man, and he makes a garden for him to work in. He creates a work environment, and he puts the man in there to work it. And this happens before the fall. Work is not a product of the curse. But even work itself is something that, as our society here in Western culture gets more and more socialistic, work and its the dignity of work is also going down. Such that, uh, now we rely on the government. The government will feed us. We just have our hands though, and the government will take care of us. And so work even is under attack in our culture today. And so almost every single theme in these first few chapters of Genesis, and so it's very important for us to understand this text and the important truths that it teaches for us as it lays a foundation for our entire faith. So this morning we're going to look at this idea of of work and how God has made Adam here, specifically in the garden, to work and to keep this garden. And we're going to discuss some practical questions as we get into it, like how do I balance my work with with life and and family and church? Uh, How are we supposed to evangelize at work? Uh, Is is my job less important than other people's job? What if I don't like my work? Uh, So we're going to talk about those practical things. And then we're also going to look at this passage as a big picture. Uh, how this passage fits in with the whole context, not just of Genesis, but of the whole Bible. And how Christ not only redeems work, but that he redeems that which is lost here in Genesis chapter 2. So if, what we're going to do first, before we get into some of those practical aspects, is look first at what this text is teaching us, okay? So we're going to dive right in to verse number 4, where it begins as, These are the generations. These are the generations. If you read the book of Genesis, you see this phrase over and over again. These are generations of Adam. These are generations of Noah. These are generations, and it goes, and somebody else. And these are, are markers in the book of Genesis that kind of divide different sections. Um, and so here, it discuss, says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. That is, these are the things that that follow from the heavens and earth. But it says, these are generations of Adam, and, and, um, Genesis uh, 5.1, these are Genesis of Adam. It then speaks of Adam's descendants. In 6.9, when it says these are generations of Noah, it follows with Noah's descendants. Here it says these are generations of the heaven and the earth. It describes what came forth from the earth. That is Adam and then later Eve. And it describes those first few moments of mankind here on the earth. Okay, so it says these are the generations in verse four of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heaven, earth and the heavens. And then it says this in verse five. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. Okay, so what's going on here? <clears throat> It says here, when there is no bush or or plant of the field. So when is this when? In verse 4, it says, in the day that God created the heavens and the earth. Now, some would look at this and say, well, this account in Genesis chapter 2 is is completely different than Genesis chapter 1. It says here, in the day that God created the heavens and the earth. And in chapter 1, he created it in six days. And so what's going on? This must be a separate account which would show us that this is merely poetry or figures of speech here in the first chapters of Genesis. We can't take this literally. Because in chapter 1, we see vegetation being made on day number 3. And so now here, as it describes the creation of man on day number 6, it says there's no bush or plant in the field. So what's going on here? Now, it's not because... This is a totally separate account. It's meant to give us more detail. And so it says in verse number five, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, verse number four answers that when. And it says, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, in the day is not meant to be taken as in God made the heavens and the earth in one day. It's It's a phrase that we see all over scripture to talk about a time period. When God made the heavens and the earth. In fact, if you have the NIV translation, it puts that in. When the heavens and earth were created, okay? And then it says in verse number five, elaborating on that when that when was in particular, when there was no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. Why? For, it says, the Lord God had not caused it to rain and there was no man to work the ground, So what we learn from this chapter is what's described here is what happens on day number six in Genesis chapter one. And so what does it mean here if it's on day number six because there's no man yet and he's about to create man? That happens on day six. What does he mean when there's no bush of the field and no small plant of the field? What we're going to see in the context, he's describing here the creation of this Garden of Eden. And it doesn't say that there was no vegetation, there is no plants. He's talking how there is no bush of the field and was yet in the land and no small plant of the field. That is, there was, there was no orchards or vineyards. or You go to these farms and you have rows and rows of crops and vegetables and fruit trees. That wasn't there yet. It was, just, it was raw vegetation and land. There was no suitable place for man to, to work and to be a farmer. And how do I know that? Because it says for, and it gives the reason why. For there is no rain yet, Okay, so there's no rain yet from from the second day when God created the the atmosphere with the clouds. And the sixth day, okay, he's not talking about no rain till the flood. That's not from this passage. Um, But what he's talking about here is that there there was no rain yet on the land and there was no man to work the ground. That is, there was no man to set all these plants in rows, you know, to line up this nice garden, this nice vineyard with all of this produce for man to live from. And so that's that's the when here. So there there was no garden yet, no farm yet created for man here on day number six. And then verse number six, it says, a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. So again, it hadn't rained yet, but yet there was still moisture, a spring of water coming up and watering the land. Then in verse number seven, okay, we have God creating Man. So here we have the situation, day number six, there was no garden, there was no nice orchard, there was no rows of vegetables nightly laid out, it hadn't rained yet, there's no man to till the ground, and then we have verse number seven, God creating the man. It says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. A few weeks ago, we looked at chapter one, where we see that same account of God creating mankind, and we saw the dignity and the value and the worth of mankind. Because man, both men and women, are created in the image of God. Now, lest we take that idea and go too far with it, we're reminded here in the second chapter that we're created from dust. Okay, And so we have this this tension. We're created from the dust of the earth, Yet we're created in the image of God, and God here breathes into man's nostrils the breath of life. We understand the scriptures teach that we are a bo- both body and soul. We have a spirit, a soul. Not unlike the animals. This description is not given to the God didn't breathe into the animals the breath of life, like he does here to man. So here God imparts to man a soul, and he becomes a living creature. Okay, not a Not a machine, Uh, Not an evolved ape or hominid, but rather created from the dust of the ground and breathed by God into his nostrils to make a living creature. Okay, so we have the creation of man, and then in verse 8 to 14, now we have the creation of this garden. Okay, so we had the opening of this section, we had no garden, we had no man, no one there to till the ground. Uh, no bush or plant in the field, all lined up nice. And so now we had the creation of man, and now we have God creating the garden for man to live in and work in. Uh, verses 8 to 14, I'm going to read all those for us. It says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden. So, so God planted this garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm actually going to stop there for a second. Notice how it describes God. So God is the one who planted this garden that was missing in verse number five. So God plants this garden, a place suitable for the man. He puts the man there. And then in verse number nine, he says, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So in this garden that God made, he made these these trees spring up, this orchard. And so now it's full of these trees that are pleasant to the sight and good for food. Does this remind you of something that's going to take place in Genesis chapter 3? Because what did Eve say when she saw this tree, the knowledge of good and evil? That it was pleasant to the eyes and it was good for food. It wasn't that God had made this one wonderful tree and said, don't touch that one tree that I made so splendid. All of the trees were pleasant to the eyes and good for food. There was no re- they had no need to go to that one tree. God had made them this garden that was pleasant to the eyes and good for food. And then he makes and puts in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we'll learn more about that as we get to chapter three. And then in verse 10 to 14, he describes more about this garden that was in Eden. He says in verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. Okay, so one river coming out of Eden and then divided into four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there's gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Okay. Now there are some who take these descriptions of these rivers and try to find where on earth could be could, or could have been this Garden of Eden. The problem is, we do, we do have two rivers today that we call the Tigris and the Euphrates. But we don't have any river that breaks into four rivers. And the Tigris and Euphrates, where they come from, are two separate places, and then they, they come together before they, um, before they finally get, get into the ocean. Um, and so, in the Persian Gulf, so what, what is being described here? Where is this? And I think it's helpful for us to recognize that this description of Eden is before the entrance of sin and before a global catechismic flood completely reshaped the face of this earth. And so when we think of Euphrates and Tigris, don't think the same Euphrates and Tigris that are here flowing from, with two other partner rivers, flowing from one single river. Okay, and we, we do the same thing with our names today. You know, my parents grew up in London. When I say that, you might be thinking London, England. But no, not London, England. London, Ontario. Okay, London, Ontario. How did London, Ontario get its name? Well, London, England. Not the same place, but we take the same name and we put it here. Does anybody know how Calgary got its name? Calgary got its name because there's a gentleman named James McLeod. The McLeod Trail, James McLeod. He named Fort Calgary, okay, because he would vacation in Scotland in the summertime. And there's a small little hamlet on the northwest side of Scotland, a little island and it's called Calgary. And if you look on the map, there's no houses, there's no maybe a few sheep. There's a, there's a Bay of Calgary. And so this was a vacation spot. It's a spot where people now go camping. Okay, So that is the namesake for our current city, Calgary. And the same thing, too, with these rivers. They have been named, Euphrates and Tigris, in keeping with these rivers that were named previously, before the flood. And I think that's the best way to understand it. Um, so that we won't be able to look on a map today and try to find these four rivers and understand where the Garden of Eden was. It would have been destroyed in the flood. What we do learn here is that God made man and then he made a garden. He planted this garden for man to work in. And not only did he give man these nice trees and, and plants and vegetables in which to cultivate and to work and to, to use, uh, but he gave these rivers, a source of, of, of water, of travel. He gave gold and bedelium and onyx stone, these precious metals, what by man could use to develop technology and wealth. Okay, God provided this environment for mankind that was perfect, was perfect. In fact, when you think of, of Eden, you think of paradise. Uh, when you think of Eden, the, word, the Hebrew word for he, Eden just means delight. And when the Greeks would translate this word garden from the Hebrew, they translate it paradisos, which we get the word paradise from. And so we think back here in Genesis chapter two, God constructs for man a paradise, a perfectly suited garden for man to work in. The last thing I want to note on this text before we talk more about work is verses 15 to 17. Verses 15 to 17, it says this, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Okay, gave him a job to do. And the Lord God commanded the man, here he gives them a command, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so, as we look at these verses, we recognize here, and theologians from the past have recognized, this is a covenant that God has made with Adam. We call it the Edemic Covenant, or the Covenant of Works. God here has made an agreement to Adam. He's given him a task to work and to keep this garden, and he's given him a commandment to stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You eat anything you want, except for this one tree. It's all good for food. It's all pleasant to the eyes. But if you disobey or break this covenant that I make with you this day, you will surely die. The question becomes, well, what does it mean that Adam will surely die? And we're going to get to that in chapter three, because that's really what happens. When Adam eats of that tree, what does it mean then that he died? And so we're going to get to that in a bit um, as we understand the result of that breaking of this covenant. Okay, so here we have God creating a perfect garden, a paradise for Adam, and later he's going to create Eve on the same day. He's giving him an instruction to work and to keep, and he's given him a commandment not to eat of this one tree. And he's given him a warning that death would come if he partakes of that tree. So now what I want to do... <clears throat> It's two different things. The first thing is look about this idea of work that God has created Adam for and this place of work. We talk about the dignity of work and then we're going to set this entire passage including this covenant given to Adam in the context of scripture and see how Christ redeems both work and this Garden of Eden. So first of all, considering work, it's important for us to recognize here In this passage, a number of times it mentions uh, there is no man to work the ground in verse number five, and the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it in verse 15, that God created man to work, and work was in this world before sin was. So often we have this idea that work is a result of the curse, okay? Work is not a result of the curse. What we see as a result of the curse in Genesis 3 is that the ground is cursed, and it's going to yield thorns and thistles, and work is going to be harder and more toilsome. But work itself is not a product of the curse. And so if you think work is a curse, well, this is something you need to be corrected on by the Scriptures and repent of. Work is not a curse. It's part of the the dignity that God has given to mankind to work. And I think even as we consider Revelation 21 and 22 and and what is going to happen there, that work is not going to be no more. As long as we just sit around and lounge on the couch all day for all eternity, we'll still be working. But work would become more difficult after the fall and how we approach work also becomes affected by the fall. And This is what I want to talk about, how we approach work and how that's affected by the fall. Uh, what I'm about to say uh, a lot of it comes from a, a helpful book called um, The Gospel at Work by Greg Gilbert and Sebastian Traeger. Uh, I, re- I recommend that, that book um, if you want to flush in some more of the details here. But some of us, as we approach work, we can fall into two sinful habits as we consider work. One of them could be an aversion to work. You know, we're tempted not to be hardworking, but to be idle in our work, to coast. Uh, we become expert pro- procrastinators, okay? And so what I mean by that is you have a task to do and perhaps you're at a desk at work and you have a task to do and you think, okay, let me just... um let me check my email one more time before I get on that task, you know, check my email. Oh, and let me check the news headlines one more time and see how I'm doing in the pool. Okay, uh, and let me let me just check the weather this weekend. I want to see the, oh yeah, and let me check the weather now in Edmonton. Yeah, I feel better now. Okay, you, you, you do all these different checks before you get the job done. It's like, okay, you finally get to work. All right, let me just get up, stretch, take a quick break, grab a quick bite to eat, and then I'll get at it. Okay, procrastination. We, we just we're avoiding work and we remain idle. And we sit back and we look at our day and what did I get accomplish? You know, not much. And some people don't like the word procrastinate. I'm not a procrastinator. I'm just a person who who needs a deadline. I need I need the pressure to be on, and so I might coast. But then when that deadline is on me, then I'm going to get to work. And it, and it's not that we need a deadline. I think the real problem is we need discipline. Um. Because you've wasted so much time to make deadline time a crunch time because you haven't been disciplined in your work. You've been lazy and been idle. And so if we have an aversion to work, then this is an an issue that needs to be addressed and remedied as someone made in the image of God to work. Another way that we can sin in our work is rather than be idle at work, we can make our work an idol. We can make work a, a, an idolatry. That is, we, we throw ourselves into our work so much that our work defines who we are as a person, and our work becomes our idol. Our work becomes what we receive all our satisfaction and joy from. It's, it's Our identity is wrapped up in our work. Now, we could do this for a variety of reasons, we, we can pursue work that becomes an idol because we desire money, because we're greedy. Or perhaps we, just, we, we desire promotion, it's, it's a game, we, it's a competition, we need to win. Or perhaps it's uh, because of problems in life. You know, it's really tough to go home. And so I'm going to put in a few more hours in the office every night because home is a mess and I don't want the pain of going home. And so I'm going I'm I'm to spend my life here at work. There could be a variety of other reasons that we throw ourselves into our work, and then we end up neglecting maybe our health, maybe our family, maybe the church, all for the sake of work. And so on one hand, we have idleness, and on the other hand, we have idolatry. And so the question we ask is, how do we get liberated from these sins of idleness and idolatry? Now, the problem, the first problem is, how do we even identify those sins? Because if someone here has work as an idol in their life, I'm just a hard worker. I'm just providing for my family. Okay, and someone here who is idle say, Well, I'm I'm more of a creative type. You know, they have some other reason why they're idle in their work. Okay, so even identifying those sins can be difficult. And so how then do we identify these sins and uproot them? Well I think it's a matter, and this is the whole purpose of, of the book, The Gospel at Work, that it's a matter of Seeing our work, not as being defined by what we do, but by seeing our work as being defined by who we work for, okay? So it's not a matter of what you do, it's a matter of who you work for, that is going to liberate you from the sin of idleness and idolatry, okay? Now I want you to to take your Bibles, keep, keep your hand or a marker in Genesis 2, and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. Now, there are other books in the New Testament, the Old Testament talk about work, but I think this passage here in particular really puts so much into just a few short sentences that help liberate us from the sin of idolatry and idleness when we consider work. Colossians three, I'm going to read from verse twenty two to twenty four. Colossians three, twenty-two to twenty-four. It says Bond servants, slaves, employees, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Look at verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Okay, remember what I said, it's not a matter of what you do, but it's a matter of who you work for, is what this passage says. Whatever you do, it doesn't matter what you do, but whatever you do, work heartily as to the Lord. You are serving the Lord Christ in your work. So this passage is teaching, it doesn't matter if you're an employer, an employee, a student, a homeschooling mom, you are serving the Lord Christ and you are working for him, now, how does this truth come to bear on some of the practical issues of work? So often we can feel I don't get much much out of my work, or I don't feel very valuable, or my work is very worthy, it's not very important. Okay? But imagine if you were working not for your current job that you currently do. Imagine if you, if you got a special assignment from our prime minister. You know, whether you agree with him politically or not, if you are working for the prime minister, suddenly your job has great importance. The whole country now depends on maybe some of your actions and decisions you make. And so you recognize the importance of your job because of who gave you that assignment. Now, take that to the infinite level when you consider the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who you're working for, not just the prime minister. So no matter what you do, you are serving him. And so immediately your job is invested with so much importance and value because of who you are serving. Perhaps at work you feel pressure to please others. You want to get ahead. And because you want to get ahead, because you want others to like you at work, you're you're tempted to cut corners. To to, to fast track. And this applies to whether you're you're at work or at school. You're tempted to, to cut corners, to maybe put others down. Or maybe you despair when people aren't pleased with you. But again, this passage liberates us from such thoughts as we recognize we don't work for them. We work for the Lord Jesus Christ. It is, it is his acceptance that we crave. And it's his acceptance that we have for free by coming to him in repentance and faith. He has given that to us. And it's his commendation that we crave. And so we work hard for him. And we, he knows our hearts. And so we're not going to cut corners. We're not going to be deceptive. We're not going to put people's down. There's no way that God is going to commend us for that. And we want His commendation. And so we work hard. Now the pressure is off us trying to please others and gain their acceptance. But rather we work for the Lord. There's three other practical questions that I want to discuss and shine some light from this text. The first question is this. How do we balance work with God, church, life, you know, relationships? How, how, do, how do we put those things in balance? And if, if you've been a Christian any length of time in the workforce, and, and I, I was working, I didn't, wasn't born a pastor, you know, I retired from that, uh, working as, as a software engineer in an office firm here downtown, you know, programming away day after day did that for almost a decade, so I understand that the mentality of being at work, but how do you balance work with all the other commitments in in being a Christian? Has anybody here ever tried to look in the scriptures for how to balance those things? All right. Only only me, I guess. Um, But as you look in the scriptures, it's very difficult to try to find how how, how to have balance in your life. And I think that the one question that, that I was asking miss is, and assuming that that balance is a virtue, that the scriptures are going to teach me how to find balance. But when I go to the scriptures, I don't see balance. Think about what you go to the scriptures and you look at the commands of Jesus. When someone says, I, I want to follow you, but, but my relative just died and I want to bury them first. Can you guys just wait on? And Jesus is like, no, you let the dead bury the dead and you follow me. That doesn't sound very balanced to me. Or he says, you know, you need to to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. That doesn't sound very balanced to me. He says, you need to, to hate your mother and father and your brothers and sisters and forsake it all for me. It doesn't sound very balanced. And so as we consider the scriptures, it's not balance that we seek. It's how do we operate in these different spheres, whether it's at work or at church under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Then you'd be thinking, well, I I still need to devote time to at least the basics of food and and drink, uh, clothing. But in Matthew 6, Jesus addresses that. He goes, don't worry about those things. And he says in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. He says, don't even worry about your food, where your drink or your clothing is going to come from. But rather, above all else, don't seek balance. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. First Corinthians 6 says we've been bought with a price. We're no longer ours. And so glorify God in your body. Okay, so as we go to the scriptures, we recognize it's not balance that we seek. It's rather how do we operate and live our lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ, where he is the preeminence in all things in our life. Everything is from him and for him and to him, as the scriptures say. So following him is our primary overarching priority of our lives, okay? It's not that you're you're a Canadian and you're a father and a husband and, oh yeah, you're a Christian. No, you are a follower of Christ first and foremost above every other title. That That defines you. This is, this is who you are. You are a follower of Christ. You are a disciple of Jesus, and that dictates everything else about you. So then how do we, if it's not balance that we seek, but rather come into the Lordship of Christ, how do we then prioritize our work and our family and our other responsibilities? How do we do that under the Lordship of Christ? Well, I think this task of prioritizing becomes easier as you submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ. Because how do you submit to the Lordship of Christ? Well, you go to Him for your marching orders. And what has He told us? Well, He's He's given us this book where He's given us marching orders. And so say you're a husband and a father. What does it look like to be a Christian? What does it look like to be a follower of Christ as a husband and father? Well, He told you, you need to be faithful in providing for your home. You need to do that. And He goes, for men who don't provide for their home, they're worse than an unbeliever. So we need, you need to do that. And what else does it mean for a man? It means you need to cherish your wife. Ephesians 5 tells you you need to, to cherish your wife. That's not the, the, if you have time, do that. That is the standard of faithfulness. This is what you must do if you're a follower of Christ. You must cherish your wife. If you're a father... You must love your children. You must train them up. You must religiously educate them. You must give them Christian education, teach them how to be a follower of Christ, teach them the scriptures. Again, this is not optional. This is not something you can pass off to the church or somebody else. This is your responsibility as a father. And so this is the, the minimum requirements for being a faithful Christian, a faithful follower of Christ in your home. And so, as we approach all these different things and prioritize them, well, we have to realize that we must be faithful in all of these areas. We must be faithful at work in providing. We must be faithful in the home in loving our wives. We must be faithful in our home in raising up our children. We must be faithful in the church by being meaningful, committed to a, a local church community. That's part of, the, of what it means to be a faithful believer in Christ. You can't neglect any of these things if you are going to be a faithful servant of Jesus. Now, if you say, well, I've, I'm have i faithful in those areas, okay, and perhaps you're not a husband and father. Well, how do you know what you need to be faithful in? Well, the scriptures would tell us what you and your life situation, what it means for you to be faithful. And if you are faithful in all the things that the scriptures under the Lordship of Christ would tell you to do, and you have more time after that? Well, then pick more of those things and then press on to greater faithfulness. Press on for more fruit in those areas. But you cannot neglect anything that Jesus has called us to do in our different roles. We must be faithful as a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay, And we recognize that as we follow Christ because we receive orders directly from Him, that these things aren't in competition with one another. It's not like if we have to choose on, on Sunday whether we're going to make Sunday a family day or a church day. Those, those things aren't separate. When we, when we bring those things together, that's what God wants for us, and we bless both our family and the church when we do things together, okay? And so we recognize there's no competition as we follow Christ. That's the first question. How do we prioritize? And We prioritize by taking our marching orders from, from Jesus himself, okay, and be faithful, The second question I want to ask and ponder, what about evangelism at work or at school? What about evangelism? Because when we think, I I need to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we think, okay, I need to go into the workplace like the Apostle Paul, get up on a desk and begin to preach. Okay, that means be a bold follower of Christ. But you probably would get fired from your job if you did that. Okay, and then you're not being faithful in your other commitments. Okay so what does it mean now to be a Christian at the workplace in terms of sharing the gospel. Well you must realize that evangelism isn't your primary job at your workplace. Okay? Your boss did not hire you to be a missionary. Okay? To to, to try to witness to him. He's hired you for a certain job and if you spend time in your day, you know, like a, a quantity of time in your day just out in the office trying to share the gospel, trying to do those kinds of things, you're actually stealing from your boss because he's paid you to do a certain job and you're not doing it. Okay? So I'd be wrong to do. However, as Christians, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are to be ambassadors for the gospel. So how then do we faithfully share the gospel at work without stealing from our employers or being obnoxious about it? Okay, three things I want to offer. The first is, and and looking at colossians 3 as an example and also genesis 2 the first thing is this be a good worker work heartily as to the lord because imagine you're at work okay you're you're not you're not spewing out the gospel all the time you're not you're not singing hymns from your desk but you're there and but you're you're a slacker you're 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 an idle person you're lazy and then somebody finds finds out you're a christian and as a Christian, you do all things to the glory of God. And they see you lazy at work. And how does that, this lazy person, how does he do all things for the glory of God? And it tarnishes the gospel rather than adorns it. Same thing if your work is your idol. And they, they, they look at you and they're like, you're all about your work, not about this Christianity thing. And again, you don't adorn the gospel. But if you are a hard worker at work, that adorns the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can tell, I I work this hard because I I work for the Lord and I'm pleasing Him and He can see my heart. And so even when people aren't watching, I am going to work hard. And so we end up adorning the gospel. The second way we can share the gospel at work is to pray for opportunities and then let people around you know that you're a Christian. Okay? Um, It's not wrong to tell someone that you're a Christian. If someone asks you, hey, what did you do last weekend? It's not wrong to say, I went to church <laughs> and, I, and I heard a sermon on, on this topic about how, how we ought how we to work and, and how, how you know, I was doing this wrong or doing this right. And it's not wrong to tell people that you went to church and they say, well, what are you going to do this weekend? Well, I have a church commitment. We're, we're going this way or going this place. You never know what those kind of conversations will bear about as, as more questions come your way. We all hate those awkward conversations of trying to, how do I start a gospel presentation? Just be yourself and talk about the things that you love. If you love Christ, you will talk about him and the people that you love, okay? This is a great way to build a bridge for deeper conversations about the gospels, letting people know that you follow Christ. The third way that we can evangelize at work is to build relationships beyond the office or beyond the workplace, Okay? While you're working on a solution around a table at work, it might not be that, or you're driving a truck. It might not be the best time to begin to crack into the, you know, four spiritual laws or something. But perhaps asking them, hey, you want to take a break or talk about after work? You want to come over to my house for dinner? Uh, invite them over. Invite invite them over. Invite over some, some people from church too, and mix unbelievers and believers, and and let the spirit work in these conversations. Okay, so try to be winsome be a good employee be wise and build relationships. So these are ways that we can evangelize at work or at school without being obnoxious about it. Okay? The third question I want to consider is this one. All right? This is a question mostly for some of the guys here who ask is is my job as a pastor more valuable than your job? Okay, the reason why I ask this is because Having a career in the past, and then resigning from that, going back to school, and now becoming a pastor, people say, oh, now you're doing something important with your life. Now now you're doing something valuable, as if, you know, being an engineer and being a software developer wasn't valuable. And other guys get the impression that, you know, we have guys in the church that, hey, I really love the scriptures, and I love to read about theology, I love to teach this, and he's like, oh, well, you need to be a pastor then. Okay? Because if you have a, a heart to learn the Bible, then, then you should need to be up there and, and be pastoring. And other guys, say, I, I want to take my spiritual life to the next level, so I think I need to go into full time ministry. Okay? It's, it's a misperception of the value of the office of pastor, thinking this is somehow more valuable than other occupations. And I just want to say that is my job more valuable than yours? No, it's not. You know, is your heart more valuable than your brain? No. Is a soldier on the ground more valuable or less valuable than the pilot in the air? No. These these are different roles, different callings. The same thing with our occupations. It's not a matter of, of value. Are you more valuable or is your job more valuable? It's a matter of what have you been called to? What does the Lord call you to? What is he giving you the desire to do, the ability to do, and the opportunity to do? As I reflect on my own life, God gave me a desire for this. He gave me uh, the ability to be able to do this, and he rolled out the red carpet of opportunity. And so I would say, God has called me, and you have confirmed that calling as a congregation. And so what have you been called to? What has God given you the desire to do? What has he given you the opportunity to do and the ability to do? And you recognize that it's not just the pastor that's a valuable job, But our world needs doctors and lawyers and construction workers and plumbers and electricians, the whole nine yards. We need that for a functioning society. And so all of these jobs and occupations are important. But again, it goes back to that, not what you do, but who you work for. And you can work for God in any occupation, as Colossians 3 would point out for us. So what we see... In Genesis two and then learn more from Colossians three is that there is dignity in work. And we should strive to avoid the sins of idleness and idolatry in our work and be corrected in our thinking by working heartily as to the Lord. And recognize that Christ, even in the sinful world, redeems us from the curse that has come upon work when we can think rightly and work rightly in the workplace today coming under the lordship of Christ. Now, before we end, there's one other thing I want to do with Genesis 2. Is put Genesis 2 in the context of the whole scriptures and show show you not just how Christ has redeemed work through having a mentality of coming under his lordship in your workplace, but how Christ will redeem humanity and how Christ will redeem this garden. So Christ will redeem work, he'll redeem man, and he'll redeem Eden. Okay, we've already seen how he redeems work by, by recognizing that we work for the Lord, not for other men. And I want to read to you, you don't need to turn there, I want to read to you 1 Corinthians 15, 45-49. Okay, this is what it says. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. This is 1 Corinthians 15, quoting Genesis 2. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, speaking of Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven." Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So as we reflect on Genesis 2, we see man made from the dust of the earth and man breathing his nostrils the breath of life and became a living creature. We recognize that's not the end of the story. Sin entered into this world. Man was corrupted. We're born in sin and iniquity. We're born at enmity with God. And so how is God going to remedy this? He's going to send another Adam, and he has in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have here the first Adam made from dust. We have the last Adam who comes down from heaven and who is a life-giving spirit. And just as we bear the image of Adam created from the dust of the earth, so too will we bear the image of this one from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this chapter, verse 15, is set in the context of talking about the resurrection talking about, and he begins this chapter by saying, this is the truth of first importance, that Christ died and he rose again for our sins. This is the gospel that I've given to you. So how do we then bear the image of this man of heaven? It's through believing in the gospel. If we do not come to Christ in repentance and faith, if we do not come under the headship of this last Adam, we'll be condemned along with the first Adam, this man of dust, But rather, it's coming under the Lordship and coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we receive not only forgiveness, but now we bear this image of Christ. We receive a a new humanity, a fresh start that's even greater than what we read here in Genesis chapter 2. So as we consider this first Adam, we have to ask ourselves, am I trusting in Jesus? Am I going to bear the image of this man of heaven? Has he made me a new creature? Am am I believing in the Jesus described here in this Bible? There's a lot of people who believe in Jesus. But is the Jesus you believe in, the same Jesus that is described in here? Is it Jesus who walked this earth, who died and rose again as a substitute, a perfect sacrifice for sin? If we believe in another Jesus, he's going to have no power to save us. Jesus is the one who we follow, not only that, the one who we hope in, he's our comfort, he's our love, he's our treasure, more than anything on this earth. And if he is your treasure, if he is your comfort, if he is your love and your joy, then you can answer, yes, I will bear this image of the man of heaven, no longer included in Adam and his brokenness, but rather in Christ and the new humanity. Not only does Christ redeem work, not only does he to redeem humanity, but he also will redeem the garden. Because wouldn't it be nice to read Genesis 2? Wouldn't it be nice to be placed in a garden where God has planted it for you and says, go ahead, take and eat? Wouldn't that be nice? It's going to come again. Listen to Revelation 22 on the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 22 says this, then the angel showed me the river of, But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. And they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. And, we'll need, and they will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. These same conditions that we see here in Genesis chapter 2 will be created even in a more glorious fashion when the new heavens and new earth. You know, there's some who divide the whole storyline of Scripture into four big acts. Creation, like we're looking at. And then the fall into sin. And the plunging into sin of of death and decay. A curse that's come upon this earth. And then Christ has come to redeem. And then Christ is going to consummate His redemption in the new creation. So we have creation, fall, redemption, new creation. And we see in the new creation, a, re, a recreation of the Garden of Eden, a recreation of man in this new humanity, in this new Edenus that is so much more glorious than we read about here in Genesis chapter 2. So as we read here, we recognize that Genesis chapter 2 is the beginning of the story, not the end. And we sit somewhere in the middle where we experience the effects of the fall and we can see the glory of creation and we can experience the justifying, forgiving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can experience His sanctifying grace as He's molding and shaping us, yet we still long for the day when we are made perfect with Him in this wonderful garden. We see Him face to face. We worship Him day and night. And so that's what we long for. That's what we hope for. And so let's live in light of this storyline. Let's Trust Christ to redeem us at our work and as we labor there, and then hope for the day when He returns and makes all things new. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful we can look at the text of Scripture this morning. Thankful that my voice was able to hold out. Thankful that your word is so very true in all of its details. Oh God, and as we consider our own selves, I pray that as we try to find ourselves in the storyline of Scripture, that we would see ourselves in this new humanity as citizens of this coming new creation because we have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, because we are His follower, because we have counted it all loss for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh God, give us greater faith in Christ. Make him a greater treasure in our lives. May we love you more and more. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.